write it down, get it out of your head, be peaceful, change your breathing, all of those sort of things. That last half hour before you go to bed is absolutely critical to be de-stressed. Anytime I think about the breath, I think of the benefits that I've got from it. I think of the benefits, the potential, calmness of the mind, the ability to focus and concentrate, holding your attention on your breathing to train the brain. How well are you able to use fat during low to moderate intensity exercise? It's variable between 23 to 93%. So huge variation. Doing lots of cardio literally slows your metabolism down. It literally makes your body a more efficient fat storing machine. To optimize your circadian rhythms, it uh, generally takes two uh, things. One, it's controlling your light environment, and then it's controlling the timing that your nutrients come into the system. So all these rules and all these educational attempts that are being slapped on us, which are actually robbing us the opportunity of developing the real skill behind everything. Quick message before you get into this show from Muscle Intelligence. Me and my team have been working diligently on creating a masterclass series for you. Two masterclasses, one on optimizing the effectiveness of your training, the other on optimizing the effectiveness of your nutrition. We all have the same number of hours in the day, roughly 16 hours. We sleep for eight, we've got 16 hours. People who make the most of their life, who create quote unquote success, are the ones that learn to be more effective with their time. They don't necessarily do more. You learn to be effective or create leverage. Well, training is no different. People think that people who are hugely fit, they, all they do is eat, sleep, and train. That's not the reality. People who are really fit learn to make the most of the 60 or 90 minutes that they're in the gym or the time that they're, they're nourishing their body. They're learning that how to optimize what goes into the body and ultimately how their body utilizes what goes into their body. If you're interested in learning my proven process to maximize your effectiveness in the gym, this means what you think about how you move, how you train, ultimately how you respond and react to the training you, you are participating in, and ultimately maximizing your nutrition. So that's not just what goes into your mouth. It is definitely choosing what goes in, but ultimately how to think about nutrition as a behavior, ultimately how to optimize digestion, nutrition, uh, sorry, absorption and assimilation. Um, nutrition Masterclass on Effectiveness is coming at you next week. Head over to muscleintelligence.com slash tickets. That's T-I-C-K-E-T-S. Muscleintelligence.com slash tickets. Or you can click the link in the show notes below. Ladies and gents, thanks for being here. Enjoy the podcast. Anecdotally, you know, I notice the leaner I get, the more I have a hard time with temperature while I sleep, which is ironic because most people think, well, you have less body fat. It'll actually be colder for you. But in reality, I find maybe it's because there's more brown fat. That my or maybe my metabolism is going faster. The leaner I get, the less I tend to sleep. Is that something you found? Absolutely. So I've done a lot of deep dives into metabolism, especially metabolism at night, and it's really interesting because you'll take a, a relatively even just small female CrossFit person, high metabolism, very lean, and even they will have a high uh, temperature profile at night, and it really has to do with that engine. So when you're revving the engine when it's hot, it really needs to be cooled down. And so the metabolism that you're creating to build that lean muscle fat is absolutely trying to put off heat. It's really just like your engine in your car. The more sort of horsepower, the more time you have in those kind of environments, the more cooling those cars need. They can't do the same cooling as a little Prius. 
Very, very cool. So first thing I want to dive into with you is, you know, most people that come into my world are in some way overstressed. And I think stress is one factor that I'd love to talk about and how exactly that is impacting sleep, because it seems as though our world that we live in today is just riddled with stress. And unless people become massively aware of it, it's probably not going away. You know, we live in a, an environment that's high paced. There's a lot of cell phones. There's a lot of cars. There's a lot of blue light, things that are sympathetically driven. Any thoughts and interventions that you implement or suggest people implementing in the realm of stress? Yeah. So stress, I absolutely agree, is really critical part of your whole life, but in particular for sleep. So when you go to sleep, your body is really geared towards recovery. So your memories recover, your body recovers. It wants to be in recovery state. And so what it wants to do is it doesn't want to be stressed out. All the hormones that are in that side of the lymphatic system are all not helpful for recovery. So the sleep space in particular, when you go in to go to sleep, it's really important to divest yourself of the stress. So I think, you know, it's obviously great if you can lose stress throughout the day and try to have practices where you're taking a minute and do breathing or, or those sort of things. But certainly in that last half hour before we go to sleep to really take that time, it, you know, it really depends on the person, whether that's meditation, some people will pray, some people will do journaling or gratitude. You know, everybody has a personal preference for what that sort of quiet introspection time will be. But to basically Think about what's going to keep you up at night. What's going to keep your mind still going? Write it down. Get it out of your head. Be peaceful. Change your breathing. All of those sort of things. That last half hour before you go to bed is absolutely critical to be de-stressed. I think a lot of people don't acknowledge the reality that your home and in particular your bedroom should be like a sanctuary, right? You should walk into this and feel like you're going home to a Zen palace. And I think a lot of people just throw a mattress on the floor or they throw a bed in the room and don't really pay attention to, you know, the energy, the feeling in the room that as soon as you walk in, is it a feeling of angst or uh, stress or is it a feeling of serenity? And, uh, you know, talking about that sleep environment a little bit is, I think, imperative so people can start creating that anchor in that environment so that, hey, this is what I do in this place. I come here to rest. I come here to recover. I come here to recharge. I think that's an important perspective to give people. Oh, absolutely. It's the only room in the house that's named after a piece of furniture. So it's not a living space. It's not where you cook. <laughs> right. It is not. It should really be a sleep room. You know, I fell into that trap I've had, you know, where I've had my workout equipment based on tight space in my bedroom. And you know, then you're like, there's all those little cues of like, well, should I be, did I do enough today? All those little questions come up so that really need to visualize that space truly as your sleep temple. You know, we do a lot of work with intention. I really feel like what the intention is, as you mentioned, going into that space is really important. And it's really important to keep it sacred and set for that de-stress, that healing. When you go into a spa for a massage, it's, they don't have TVs and all sorts of craziness going on. It's, it's peaceful music. It's dim lighting. It's set to get you to relax so that even before you actually do the massage, you're breathing in the right fumes and the aromatics and you're, you're hearing the right sounds and you're having the right light. It's really important to sort of think about that same thing for sleep. Yeah, very cool. I know a lot of people have heard the conversation around turning your bedroom into a cave that's cold and dark and lacks everything electrical. And that's 
really the way I think about it is like when I walk into this, I almost want it to feel like I'm walking into a spa. Like I want to feel like it's like you put, you're letting everything down just, and just everything's falling off your shoulders. And it's like, ah, I get to relax. And, and if you can create that environment, especially in your home, obviously if you're on the road, it's impossible, but create that in your home. I think that would create the best case scenario for someone to start leaving those stresses behind. Yeah. So I spent a lot of time with BJ Fogg, who's a behavioral specialist from Stanford. He's got a great book coming yeah. out on tiny habits. And I, I really feel like sleep is definitely all about habits. And I think that as you travel, a lot of professional athletes travel. And one of the tricks to still get good sleep is to create those habits of intention and do the same thing and try to be able to do those same things even when you're on the road. So you may be in a hotel room, but make it dark and dim the lights and take the same time to journal or meditate or whatever you're going to do for that last half hour. Try to keep those habits because your body is on a clock. It's on a circadian rhythm. It wants that methodical habit-based approach to sleep. So Tara, what are the primary physiological factors impacting sleep? So if you want to walk through kind of all the systems that we should be paying attention to, for someone looking to optimize sleep. So is, you know, is it the visual system with light? Is it the you know, autonomic nervous system with, with stress? Like how should we be looking at sleep optimization maybe from a systems approach? Yeah, so I like to start with sort of the evolutionary approach. So in the oldest part of your brain, which is the hypothalamus and it's oldest just from the perspective of evolution, that's where a lot of your sleep centers are. And that's also where your chronotype or circadian rhythm, now chronotype it, all of us have a little bit of a different rhythm to that circadian clock. That's where the night owl or morning person comes from. And it's important to kind of, there's lots of quizzes online to take that'll give you kind of a perspective on what that timing is. That's really what drives us. It drives all of those factors of sleep and it is governed by light and temperature, as you mentioned. So it's important to give that sort of respect. When you do that, it's magical for those workouts, for cognitive load, it can help you decide when you do stuff throughout the day, when you should eat, if you're doing fasting or if you're doing heavy protein. There's all sorts of information about sort of timing your day, especially for performance-driven people based on chronotype. So that's sort of the first place, I think, to start. Yeah. We've had expert Greg Potter on the podcast in the past. And, oh, great. Uh, yeah, he's a whiz when it comes to this stuff. But I'd still like to dive into that a little bit before you kind of go on to the other systems because, you know, maybe someone hasn't had a chance to listen to Greg or I just like to hear your perspective on how much of a difference does that actually make? Like, is there, you know, a multi-hour swing from someone who might be a morning person to someone who's more of a night person? Or is it just a, a small uh, variance person to person? So I'll sort of handle it from the approach of sleep. So your core body temperature actually fluctuates about two degrees throughout the day. And the coldest part of that or the lowest part of that valley happens in the middle of the night. And so when you time your sleep around that, and we'll get into deep sleep later, but it really makes a phenomenal difference on the temperature. Now, there's also Clifford Sapir out of Harvard was one of the first people to coin the term sleep switch. And actually, there is a sleep switch. There are neurons in your brain that are triggered by temperature. They signal the release of melatonin and start that. So, you know, when you look at how that system works, so if you have a temperature cue, a change in temperature, change in light can also be a, it's a backup system for triggering that sleep. So if you trigger that in the right window based on your clock, when your body's looking for that trigger to be turned on, then 
you get a much better sleep. What happens for, from a sleep perspective is then you immediately go into deep sleep. It really does stay very succinct where it's very deep sleep heavy in the first part of the night. It's looking to be colder. When you match that, the effects are amazing for sleep. We get what we like to call sleep density improvement. So that is a quality factor, but you're able to get much denser sleep. So even if you get a shorter sleep, you're still able to get that same quality. But a lot of that is triggered on being in the right window at the right temperature. And you're able to sort of, it's an absolute hack to be able to change that. Now for performance is the same way. If you're a morning person and you work out in the afternoon, and if you intrinsically know that about yourself, you're going to sort of register that. Yeah, that makes sense. So for me, I'm a super morning person, but I have have boys. So sometimes I'll go to work out with them in the afternoon and I'm like, I can't get the same groove on. It just doesn't feel the same. Did I physically go through the workout? Absolutely. Were all my metrics the same? No. Did I feel the same? No. So it's not like a, you know, wide swing of maybe 50% difference, but it's in that feel and in the overall performance and what you feel like on the other side. So you mentioned in there that temperature may actually be a bigger influence on circadian rhythm than light. Is that the case? It is for sleep. So they all factor in. But again, that's not solely my opinion. That's Clifford Sapier out of Harvard has spent time on that. He discovered it by looking for a pharmaceutical cue for sleep, ironically, but then spent more time diving further into what that is. And those VLPO neurons are actually triggered by temperature. Gary Siegel of UCLA also did a hunter-gatherer research on sleep and found the same thing, that temperature was the major cue for them. Super interesting. Now, so how does that implicate into people manipulating temperature before bed? So I hear a lot of people doing, you know, cold showers or cold plunges or versus saunas before bed. I've heard of that as well. Obviously, exercise would be something you'd probably want to avoid as far as increasing your core body temperature. But any thoughts on cold exposure or sauna exposure before bed and how that's going to implicate? So those are all fabulous ways to hack that system and get that sleep switch to flip. So the reason it gets flipped is there's a change in temperature and it's significant enough to cause an even 0.1 degree difference in that core body temperatures. It has to be something that would register into your core body. So that's why all of those extreme measures, some people find even putting socks on is enough. But if you have a high metabolism, that your body will respond like it's so efficient, it's not going to register a small change. But depending on where you are in that scope, an extreme change is absolutely going to flip that switch. Now, timing it definitely makes that better. So that's where, you know, it Whether if you're going to sleep two hours later than you should and you do an ice bath, will it still help you fall asleep? Absolutely. But it will work better if you do it a little bit earlier. So it's just a change in temperature? It doesn't matter if it's in either direction? No, it doesn't. You know, some of it's personal preference because, again, sleep is very habit-based. But it is. Our current environment is pretty much constant. So we set our heat, our air conditioner, to around the same temperature all year round. And then we live in that. And then we go in our car or in our bus or some other managed space to our office. And that's in a managed space. We're not spending as much time outside where there's a natural temperature flux. So another thing is if it's a different temperature outside, go for a walk before you go to bed. And it doesn't really change your metabolism that much. Like you said, don't want to work out before you go to bed because that's changing your metabolism and not just your temperature. You want to just focus on that temperature because you don't want to sort of excite your body or release cortisone at that time. You kind of avoid anything that would resist that. And that's where reducing stress also helps and just changing that temperature without stress. 
this has an enormous power and none of this you know like mankind has been following the breath for two and a half thousand years but i just feel that it got a bad rap over the years and it got a bad rap because people were kind of talking about different breathing exercises and they weren't able to support it there was no physiological reason that all they were doing was just you know they were passing on a message but that message was getting distorted over the years and one of those messages is your stress take a deep breath and the person usually responds with this full and big breath and you know that doesn't make people feel better and on the basis that it doesn't make people feel better it's not going to get any attention so it's put aside then if we really explore what we can do through the breath and i'm not just talking about the individual who's got asthma or the person with sleep apnea and even this field of sleep apnea it's very common it is a huge negative impact on health it affects more men than it does women and breathing re-education has a huge application however nobody has looked at research worldwide what happens when you address breathing patterns from three dimensions and the last few weeks over the last couple of months i was writing a paper with another ear nose and well i'm not an ent but I was writing a paper with an, an ear, nose and throat doctor, Dr. Carlos O'Connor, and another medical doctor. And we had the paper published. It was accepted for publication. We got no news last night. So here is a peer-reviewed article looking at what happens when we change breathing patterns and the impact that this can have on a condition such as sleep apnea. And think of the relevance of this. Productivity is affected. How many Americans wake up feeling tired every morning? Most. And they're going into work, they're not able to focus, they're not able to handle stress because we think about resilience, you know, this word resilience is bandied about. I know if, if I have a bad night's sleep, and we can be all prone to it, this is the reality of it, and you're waking up almost feeling like you've had a hangover, you're grumpy, you can't focus, you're, you're definitely not productive. You know, you'd sit down to write or you'd sit down to formulate, um, you know, even answering emails, and you just don't have that concentration. And this is where we can influence it. And I don't think any individual will recover and improve resilience without looking at sleep. And this goes back a few years. I remember I was talking about, I can't remember the guys, but there were special forces, the Green Berets. And they wrote a book, I think it's called The Bomb Factory, The Blast Factory. But these guys were suffering, two Green Berets special forces, suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder. And I remember them telling, saying it to me that, Cognitive behavioral therapy, they didn't get a whole lot out of it. The best thing that they got in terms of their PTSD was getting their mouth closed at night, taping the lips, something as simple as that. But it makes sense because if you have a deeper quality sleep, you wake up feeling more refreshed and it's better. So I suppose, Ben, we, you know, don't just think of breathing as being, you know, put your hands on your, on your abdomen and as you breathe in you're pushing the belly out and start filling the, the lower lungs full of air and filling the upper and you know let's start looking at everyday breathing patterns 75 percent of the adult population have anxiety sorry 75 percent of the adult population with anxiety have dysfunctional breathing why is that group not getting their breathing patterns assessed screened and addressed because cbt is not going to change respiratory physiology and oftentimes those individuals, they have poor sleep. And again, how can you have a calmness of the mind if, the, if, if your sleep quality is not good? Look at the asthma population. Even individuals with exercise-induced asthma. Think of all the athletes that come into your gym. And these guys and gals are feeling bronchoconstriction. They're prone to chest infections. 
you know, they push themselves if to do a long endurance event. The next thing is they feel that their, their lungs are raw and inflamed. How about changing their breathing patterns and giving them the tools of including breathing through the nose? And I know at the start for every individual, it's more difficult to breathe through your nose during physical exercise, but this is the load. You're adding an extra load onto your breathing during training, helps to strengthen the breathing muscles, but it also helps you to tolerate higher pressure of carbon dioxide in the blood. And that's the primary stimulus to breathe. And by doing that, then you can improve your breathing efficiency. So your breathlessness during physical exercise is less and there's more gas left in the tank. You've got a better reserve. So that's just a couple of aspects of it. And, you know, it's it's the new book forced me to look at topics that I hadn't looked at diabetes. And again, that was by accident. One guy called Nick Heat, he's diabetic since I think he was 11 or 12 years of age, type one. And he was using diet and physical exercise, you know, helping him, no doubt. He got the oxygen advantage, started taping his mouth up at night and his diabetic control improved, started slowing down his breathing. His diabetes control improved. His insulin now is 20% less than what it was. And mm. it's not just about reducing medication, but here we are giving a tool back that costs pretty nothing. The book was $20, you know? And not only are you going to get benefits, does Nick get benefits for his diabetes? But I, I was, anytime I think about the breath, I think of the benefits that I've got from it. I think of the benefits, the potential, calmness of the mind, the ability to focus and concentrate, holding your attention on your breathing to train the brain. And I often use the example, regardless of what field we work in, we need concentration. The child in school needs concentration, otherwise they don't do well in exams. The, the student in university needs concentration. The person, the CEO, needs to be able to concentrate. So concentration is one of those life skills that is absolutely dema demanded of us. But yet, nobody tells us how to concentrate. We are not told how to improve our concentration. And then we have to ask the question, what impacts our concentration? Well, if the mind is racing, if there's a lot of thought activity coming in and out of the mind, if you cannot switch off your mind, you're not going to be able to focus because how can you focus on a subject matter when your mind is constantly bombarded with thoughts? How do we get control of that brain? How do we get control of the mind? And education teaches us how to think and to reason and to decipher information and to break information into tiny pieces. We are being trained how to think, but we are not taught how to stop thinking. And I'm not meaning to stop thinking just like a vegetable. I'm meaning to have the calmness that we can focus upon what we need to focus on. Sleep is important and breathing is the gateway both to sleep and also to concentration because we can calm urinal excitability known since 1924. The brain by regulating breathing regulates its own excitability. And this was known with people with epilepsy and I put a chapter on epilepsy. And I'm not saying that breathing is going to help all forms of epilepsy, but it does help some. And part of the diagnosis of a child or a teenager, maybe an adult as well in a hospital setting, to see if they're prone to epilepsy is to ask them to hyperventilate and to see how does the brain respond due to the heavy breathing. And if the brain is responding due to the heavy breathing, well, then we know that heavy breathing is impacting epilepsy for that individual 
why not teach that individual to counter the effects of stress? Because when they get into stress, they're naturally going to start breathing faster and harder, or maybe their everyday breathing is faster and harder, which is feeding into their condition. And you know, it's, it's amazing. You know, we have this tool and you're right. This has been overlooked. Yeah, that's so much, so amazing. There's so much value in that that I want to unpack. So first thing I'll say to anyone listening, like the first thing that I suggest everyone do, whether their objective is in performance or improving stress, improving sleep, like anyone who wants to improve their life, period. The first thing we're like, okay, we have to address breath and looking at those three pillars of breath, the biomechan biomechanics, the biochemistry and the cadence as you teach is always the lens through which I look at it. And then, you know, always making sure the biomechanics is on point. And that takes time. And people sometimes get frustrated that, oh, I don't breathe correctly. And now it's going to take this overwhelming amount of work. And it's not, it's just time and consistency. And then learning how to manipulate the biochemistry, as you say, is kind of this access point, we'll call it, into uh, either higher levels of performance or a more calm mind. And I'd love to have you draw a correlation then, or like maybe a, go through the actual biochemistry of what's happening. Like, why does breathing itself improve somebody's focus and concentration. So uh, you and I know that, and if people have listened to the podcast in the past, they'll probably know as well, but I'd love for, to have you, for people who haven't heard your stuff before, just unpack that a little bit because you, know, you and I draw a straight line between breathing and focus, um, and, but most people may not. Sure, there's a number of different levels. You know, anytime you pay attention to your breathing, you're going to help bring a stillness to the mind and mindfulness and meditation is all being about that. And it's wonderful, however, the group of people who need it most cannot do it. How can you focus on your breath when, you're, when your mind is in turmoil? It's not just enough to focus on the breath, but we have to influence our breathing and alter it. Think of how somebody typically breathes if they're prone to anxiety, panic disorder, or a racing mind. So you can have, if, you, if we were to assess the world's population, especially in the Western world, and try and find out the degree of a racing mind there, I would reckon it's pretty high. It's not about anxiety, it's the fact that we cannot switch off. How can we help to switch off? Number one, when we slow down the speed of our breathing, and you could do this in the comfort of your chair at home, you have your mouth closed, you're breathing in and out through your nose, and really slow down the speed of the air coming into your nose and almost breathe in, almost that the breath is imperceptible. And after you take a very light breath in, have a really slow and relaxed and gentle breath out. You're having a slow and prolonged exhalation and then when you need to breathe in take a very soft and light gentle breath in and the purpose of this exercise is to slow down the speed of your breathing so that you breathe less air <clears throat> into your lungs and because you breathe less air there's a gas called carbon dioxide that accumulates in your blood because you're not getting rid of the gas so much from the blood through the lungs and you know that carbon dioxide increases when you feel air hunger so the objective is to reduce the volume of air that you breathe, to breathe less air for a period of time, to increase carbon dioxide in the blood. And as carbon dioxide increases, your blood vessels dilate. <clears throat> and as carbon dioxide increases, there's what's called a right shift of the oxyhemoglobin dissociation curve, but hemoglobin, which is the main carrier of oxygen in the blood, it releases oxygen in the presence of carbon dioxide, the resultant blood change to blood BH. So, when we think of bringing a calmness to the mind, the biochemical component is very important because if we have an individual who is in a state of breathing slightly faster and harder, it's getting rid of too much carbon dioxide from the blood through the lungs. 
this is increasing blood pH and this arouses the central nervous system. So the brain becomes excited due to the hyperventilation from a biochemical point of view. That's why it's important also to normalize minute ventilation. And what I mean by that is to breathe a normal volume of air per minute, not to overbreed. We have to dismiss the whole idea that it's beneficial to be breathing hard. Hard breathing. I remember doing an exam. I always use the example. I was going in to do a finals exam. I was anxious about it. I took a walk for two minutes before the exam and I was taking these full big breaths for two minutes and I walked into the exam hall, spaced out, lightheaded, couldn't focus. So I did the wrong thing, but that was the information that was available because that's all I was hearing as a young 20 year old, take more air, breathe big, you know, inside in a studio, everybody is hearing their breathing. You know, that's not what the breath is about. Subtlety is about breathing. And if you go back to the ancient yoga texts, and one yoga instructor, Robin Rottenberg, has just done that. She wrote a book called Restoring Prana. And ancient yoga was not about hard breathing. The word that was used was subtlety. The breath must be subtle. Now you think of subtle breathing, that means breathing light. Mm -hmm. And they knew about the importance of conservation of the breath. But in the Western world, we have the opposite idea. So that's from a biochemical point of view. From a biomechanical point of view, yes, of course, there is a connection with the diaphragm and the emotions. It's not just that the diaphragm is responsible for respiration, but there is some connection there. There is some feedback from the diaphragm back to the brain. Yep. When we breathe low, with greater amplitude of the diaphragm, it helps to bring a calmness to the mind. So and low, just meaning into your belly and, and down expansive into the diaphragm. Exactly. So basically, when a person breathes, first of all, to breathe low, we have to breathe through the nose. If we breathe through the mouth, we typically activate the upper chest. So nose breathing is going to ensure a greater amplitude of the diaphragm so that during the breath in, the diaphragm is moving downwards. Now, as the diaphragm is moving downwards, we're, we're going to have movement to the side ribs. So the lower side ribs should be pushing outwards. We have movement to the front, we've movement to the back, we've movement to the sides. And movement to the sides is also very important, and it's a different topic, but the relationship between functional breathing and functional movement. So we do need low breathing for calmness of the mind. But also when we breathe low, we typically breathe slow. And slow breathing is also beneficial, and this is for resonance frequency breathing. But even if we have a slow respiratory rate, not necessarily down to between 4.5 and 6.5 breaths per minute, I'll talk about that in a moment, but if you have an individual with a high respiratory rate, 15, 16 plus breaths per minute, the communication from the body back to the brain is that the body is in a state of stress. And I'm talking about this is when the individual is not during physical exercise, but during rest. Is there anything you're doing before fasting to ensure the body is more likely to use uh, fat for fuel rather than yeah. glycogen or protein? Yeah. So the biggest thing I found with that was having a transition period because years ago I was looking for something that I'm like, okay, so most people need to upregulate their use of fat as a fuel. There's good studies. Gadecki did a study. Helges did a study in 1999. I did one study that showed that if we just hold people off the street who are metabolically healthy and exercise, not high-end athletes, and we put them on a metabolic cart and go, okay, how well are you able to use fat during low to moderate intensity exercise? It's variable between 23 to 93%. So huge variation. Some people are really good at doing that. Other people, really horrible at doing that. 
And what I found with fasting is, yeah, you could white knuckle it for 19 to 24 hours and you could get through it. But the aftermath was not very good, right? You tended to way overeat, which kind of destroys the whole point of fasting. And I made this mistake. So like 10 years ago, did some training and I'm like, all right, I'm going to do fasting. I'm convinced that this is the way to go for a day. I got to around 10, 11 a.m. I ran across the street to a Chinese buffet and was there for like two to three hours. I'm like, no, this is a horrible idea. I don't like this. But I had been used to eating every three to four hours uh, while I was awake. So for me to go to 24 hours without any food, that would be like, you know, someone coming to my garage gym and be like, hey, bro, never deadlifted. Awesome. Let's put 405 on the bar, right? And you know, <laughs> 10 cents. Uh, someone like yourself, you're going to be fine. 10 cents right. of 10 German volume training. Here right. we go, right? Most people are not going to be able to do that, right. but we can drop it down to 135, 225, 315, whatever. We can scale it to wherever your capacity was. So the mistake I made was assuming that that hard transition was going to work. And I went, oh, shoot. So then I said, okay, so I'm going to take Monday, let's say is my fasting date. And I'm going to push my fast out each week, only once per week, by about two hours. So if I could easily do 12 hours overnight, overnight's usually the easiest time period. The next week on Monday, I'm just going to push breakfast out by two hours. Cool. I did 14 hours. Awesome. So following Monday again, I'm going to try to go out by two hours again. So I'm going to push breakfast to lunch. For whatever reason I found, if people skip breakfast, they got mad at me. But I told them, just eat breakfast at your lunch and skip your lunch. They were happy. So I don't know why. People like breakfast. Um, and then about six-day weeks total time, most people could easily do a 19 to 24-hour fast. And then what I do to monitor compliance is, how did it go? And then tell me what your meal was after you finished your fast. That meal should look pretty much identical to all your other meals. Right. And if that meal all of a sudden doubles in size or looks crazy, despite what you told me, I'm thinking you probably pushed it a little too hard on your fast. So I'm going to actually back you up until you get used to it. And then we'll go forward from there. But I found with that adaptation period, that made a huge difference. Yeah. There's so much I want to ask within that. And and I think we could probably talk two two hours on that. Um, So where my brain goes with that, one meal a day has become a big trend in in many communities. Right. I'm curious how you feel about that because that's actually what I find with a lot of clients is um, people will follow the the one meal a day protocol, but their meal is just enormous. And there's kind of -hmm. of a lot of data that suggests having huge boluses of fat, huge boluses of carbohydrates, even if it's just once a day, isn't the best idea. So I've seen data that says decreasing the eating window, you know, to as little as four hours. um, If you have the same amount of calories in four hours as you do spaced over 12, you actually get better fat loss by eating just in that four hour window. And, but I've also seen other data that suggests if you eat too much at one meal, uh, it can be neg- it can negatively impact inflammation, LPS, uh, obviously glucose tolerance. Maybe tell me what your your perspective is on on both ends of that. Yeah, I'm not a big fan of the one meal per day. Right? Can you find people that it works with? Absolutely. Usually, it's people who are crazy busy and only have time to eat in the evening. Uh, reason I'm not a big fan of it. Uh, the one pro is that you are less likely to overeat at that one meal, and even if you overeat. Right, you're probably not going to make up for like all your day's calories in one meal. I, right. Again, I've met people who could probably do that, I'm sure. But the average person, probably not. So from a sheer lowering of calories, could it work? Yeah, definitely could yeah. work. Um, but some of what you said is, eh, some of the markers that happen after that are kind of scary looking, right? So blood glucose goes super high. Yeah. Uh, fatty acids go high. There's some stuff looking at um, 
Uh, we used flow meter dilation when I was in the lab to look at blood vessel function. So after a high fat meal, you can see blood vessel function isn't quite as good for a period of time. So there's some, I would say, potential negatives from that. And especially as people are getting older, um, as you know, you're missing those chances to spike uh, muscle protein synthesis. We know that that's going to be downregulated, especially as you get older. And you probably don't need to go crazy, but you talk to experts like Dr. Stu Phillips and others, three to five meals per day, you know, of high protein, you're probably going to be pretty good. So I think you're missing out on some of those times to uh, increase uh, protein synthetic response in order to try to hold on to as much uh, muscle as possible too. So one of the things you said in there that I think is super interesting to explore is people you pull off the street are anywhere between 23 and 93% fat utilization of yeah. rest. And actually, when I texted you the other day, that was kind of the topic I really wanted to dive into is what are the best practices? If I want, let's, this is where this question came from. I had someone in the gym this week who was competing. He was four days out and he was kind of not in the best shape. And, you know, he had a few pounds to lose. And he said to me, hey, if you had, you know, uh, five days to a competition and you wanted to lose the maximum amount of fat, what would be your best practices? To ensure your body is you ultimately what you didn't know, but what it, to ensure your body is using the greatest amount of fat at rest, what would you what would be the protocol? What would be like the day to day protocol? And that really got me thinking. I was like, okay, I do this and I do that and I do that. I'm like, okay, this would be a great question to ask Dr. Mike. So I'm curious what you, I don't know if, if you can answer that question from a context yeah. of like, hey, you got five days to go, or just in general, like, hey, I want to use more fat at rest. Yeah, the short answer is if you have five days to go, you're just going to have to suffer a lot. <laughs> Sure. But bodybuilders are willing to do that, right? Yeah. The, 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 yeah. That's like a prerequisite, right? Yeah. So that's no problem. I mean, you're looking at higher protein-ish, you know, pretty much super low calories, a fair amount of movement, right? Because as you well know, your body is going to- Low intensity, right? Like Probably, but you still want yeah. some weight training because you don't want to sure. lose any muscle, right? Yeah. And to me, that circumstances, you're all looking at just energy management. Right. Because right. you've seen the debate, right? It's oh, low, low intensity cardio. That's the best thing. No, no, no. Don't do too much low intensity. You're going to lose all your muscle. You got to do this super ultra high intensity and that's the way to go. And I mean, both of them can work. But at the end of the day, it's like, what can you manage for quality output? Right. Most people can't handle a lot of uh, weight training, a lot of high intensity interval work that's at a high level of output on super low calories for long periods of time right? You're just you're not going to do so well. Again, yeah. that's not your goal per se, because you're not performance based. But so what physiological markers would you look at? Mike? Would you, would you look at, would you measure cortisol? Would you measure HRV? Would you measure respiration rate and CO2? Like, is there any like objective markers we could start looking at to, I mean, other than obviously doing a metabolic card um, to, to kind of try to sway our body more toward using fat for fuel? Yeah. So markers, again, metabolic heart would be best. Uh, you could look at total metabolic rate by using like doubly labeled water. That's probably how they would do it in the lab. So they just basically kind of put a tracer on water and try to look at overall metabolic rate. Usually in that short period of time, resting metabolic rate is probably not going to change a whole lot, to be honest. Uh, but your NEAT, so non-exercise and activity thermogenesis is going to fall like a stone, But which again, you can compensate for by more walking, more movement, yeah. low intensity cardio, things of that nature. Um, I mean, I only work with a handful of physique athletes and have you know, off and on for like 10 years. Um, I've always measured heart rate variability in them. And pretty much, I was just talking to my buddy Ryan about this last weekend. And pretty much across the board, what you'll see 
is even if they're getting ready for a show and they're doing it in a very intelligent manner, they've got plenty of time, they're not doing really crazy shit, you'll see over time that their HRV gets lower and lower and lower, right? So it gets more and more sympathetic, which is kind of what you'd expect, right? Your body's under a lot amount of stress. And then at some point, literally within like a couple of days or sometimes a day, they'll go massively parasympathetic. And the first time I saw this, I was like, what the hell? This must be an error, right? Like, what does this person's an outlier? It's weirdo. And then it started happening with everyone. And you ask me like, oh, how do you feel? Oh, man, I don't feel so good. I feel really tired. You know, I just don't have much energy. And what you see is it makes sense if you think about your body from a survival standpoint. Your body's saying, hey, you're having me do all this crazy training. You're having me do this on very less calories. I'm still trying to move. You're monitoring my step counts. We don't want your knee to go off a cliff. I'm trying to sleep. I've got sleep disturbances. And your body's saying, yeah, I'm more stressed, more stressed, more stressed. Okay, screw you. I am going to be so parasympathetic, right? I'm going to put on the brake as hard as I can because basically I want to make you lie on the couch and drool on yourself. Because if you keep going, it's not going to be very pretty. And what you'll see is they'll stay parasympathetic all the way through their show. And then after my little rule was, okay, until your HRV normalizes, we can then maybe have a discussion about when your next show is. But I don't even want to discuss it until you can show me that your nervous system has normalized. Because people think, oh, I finished my show. I'm great. Woohoo! I'm awesome. It's like, well, you feel good for a day. And they're like, why am I so tired? Right? Because all that fatigue is accumulated. And you can see it in their score. And oddly enough, when they're that high, when they get a little bit more sympathetic, it starts dropping. They're like, oh, you know, I felt a little better today. But wait, my HRV score went down. It says I'm more sympathetic. It's like, yeah, that's what we want, right? We want to start getting that response back. It's like if you've ever gone to the gym and you've just been like super tired, eh, like performance isn't really good. They get kind of stuck in that state. So the reason it's useful to monitor that too is I've had a couple of clients where they hit that parasympathetic point like three months out and you're going, oh shit, this isn't gonna, <laughs> this isn't yeah. gonna be good, right? It, it's gonna happen. So my goal was, can we get that to happen as close to your actual show date as we can? If it's happening three or four months out, I, I probably screwed up and we probably were a little bit too aggressive and now we have to decide what do we do? You know, what kind of cost do you want to pay in order to get to that point? Have you drawn a correlation between um, high HRV, low HRV, and um, metabolic flexibility? So the ability to utilize fat at rest? Yeah. So amazingly, there hasn't been too much work on that, which is one of the goals that I was trying to do when I was doing my PhD is in theory, you would assume that the more parasympathetic you are, that that may be a surrogate marker for the use of fat. Right. Because if we just go back and we just think real simply for people listening, we're like, okay, exercise. Great. I'm going to go to the gym. I'm going to lift some weights today. Awesome. And we monitor what happens with your heart rate variability. Let's say you're hooked up to a metabolic cart. So we know what fuels you're using. What we see is as heart rate goes up, as you do more and more intense work, heart rate variability goes down, right? You're becoming more sympathetic, which is what you want when you're lifting. And we see that your body will then transition via the crossover effect to using more carbohydrates. Hopefully during rest period, it'll kind of, you know, switch back the other way. So we know that 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 happens, but there hasn't been much data that's looked at uh, over a training, let's say, period. Does HRV give us a marker related to fat use or not? 
So in the example I had is someone who's parasympathetically overreached. Are they really using more fat or is it just their nervous system is so overloaded that it's really just trying to shut down their body and fuel usage doesn't really change at all? So we know acutely it definitely changes. Chronically, surprisingly enough, I have no idea. (laughs) Today's podcast is brought to you by our friends over at Bioptimizers, an incredibly longtime sponsor of this podcast because... They have amazing products that you continue to buy because they work. I think every one of my clients is certainly on mass zymes. I take that consistently every day. I like to take a lot. I like to take five in the morning on an empty stomach and then three to four with each of my high protein containing meals. This really helps me extract the protein from the meat and the ultimate protein sources that I'm consuming rather than just eating it and assuming that my body's going to utilize it. I want to make sure that my body can digest, absorb, and assimilate all these highly cost, uh, high cost proteins and high quality proteins that I'm consuming. It's not just about what you consume. It's about what your body can digest, absorb, and assimilate. So I highly suggest you head over to bioptimizers.com and use the code muscle 10 to get 10% off. That's B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S, bioptimizers.com. Use the code muscle 10. They've also got an incredible suite of incredible products from P3OM to support digestion, Capex to support people on a ketogenic diet. And you guys all know my incredible, uh, how much of an incredible fan I am of their product, um, Magnesium Breakthrough, which is seven different magnesium chelates. Um, and they're also expanding their line consi- consistently every year with research and doing incredible products. You guys get hooked up with 10% off all of their products. Head over to buyoptimizers.com and use the code MUSCLE10. The old paradigm, and this is really what we're fighting, right? Is the is this paradigm of fitness that's just, it's just false, it's wrong. And, and this is what the paradigm was. And this is the main, the mainstream accept, accepted paradigm, which is, and we'll talk about obesity because obesity is the big, like that's the big goal everybody has. We've got to get rid of obesity, lose weight. And of course, obesity contributes to lots of other uh, chronic health issues, right? So, okay, in order to lose weight, you got to burn more calories than you take in or to put it differently, take in less calories than you than you output, right? So that ca- that energy imbalance is what causes you to lose weight. So the old paradigm was, okay, exercise burns calories. Let's pick the form of exercise that burns the most calories. That makes sense. Now on its face, it does make sense, right? Cardio for 30 minutes will burn more calories during the time you're doing it than almost any other form of exercise. But the problem is this. The problem is we're completely ignoring the big effects of exercise, which are what kind of adaptations are these exercises or these workouts causing in my body? Now, here's what happens with cardiovascular activity. And by the way, your body adapts, and I know you know this, but this might be more for the audience. The body adapts to exercise because exercise is a stress. And so what it does is it tries to get better at whatever you're doing so that next time the same insult doesn't produce the same amount of stress. So you go for a run, and a quarter mile is exhausting and you can barely finish it and your body's stressed out. And so it tries to get better at running so that next time you can run a quarter mile and it doesn't cause stress. And then you go further and, and so on. So what does that adaptation look like? Well, here's what you're asking your body to do. I'm burning a lot of calories while I'm doing this activity. Okay, it's a, very, it's a very manual form of calorie burn. I have to do it, right? So I'm burning lots of calories while I'm doing it. I don't need a lot of strength. In fact, I need very little strength to do endurance work. Um, 
combine those two, especially in combination with the diet, if you're trying to lose weight, and what the body does is it tries to become a more efficient endurance machine, which means burn less calories. I, I'm trying, it's, it's, it would be no different than if we had a, uh, an artificially intelligent car that adapted to my driving behaviors. If I drove slow for long distances, my car would automatically turn itself into a, you know, a, a one-cylinder engine or some kind of a hybrid engine, right? It's trying to become efficient and good at what you're asking it to do. Doing lots of cardio literally slows your metabolism down. It literally makes your body a more efficient fat storing machine. Okay. And by the way, this isn't just my opinion, although I've observed this a million times. I mean, anybody who's ever worked out in gyms for longer than a couple of years knows what those cardio bunnies look like who just do cardio all day long and they have very small flabby bodies, right? So, but the studies actually support this. In fact, there's this really, really interesting study I quote in the book where scientists went and studied a, a modern hunter-gatherer tribe. They're called the, the Hadza tribe. They're in uh, northern Tanzania. And what they did through pr some pretty sophisticated testing is they wanted to see how many calories they burned on a daily basis. And remember, these are hunter-gatherers, so they're, they're very active in comparison to the average Westerner. I mean, they're foraging, they're hunting, they're walking, they don't have TVs, they don't have electronics, they don't have couches. They're moving all the time. Now, what they expected and what they got were completely different. They expected this hot, the, these Hadza people to burn tremendous amounts of calories because of the amount of activity. But what they found actually was so shocking, they redid the study. What they found was that they burned right around the same amount of calories as the average Westerner. Now, at first you think, how is that possible? Well, these people are moving all the time and the average Westerner sits on their butt most of the time. But then if you really think about uh, evolution and how we all, for most of human history, humans evolved from hunter-gatherers, it makes perfect sense. It makes no sense for our bodies to burn 8,000 calories a day when food is very difficult to come by. We evolved to become better at what we do, and part of that is become efficient with calories, and that's what cardiovascular exercise does. So here's what weight loss looks like when cardio is your main form of exercise with weight loss. You initially lose weight and then you plateau real hard. And then if you need to, if you want to lose any more weight, you got to cut your calories more or increase your calories more or, or increase your cardio. By the way, studies show this quite clearly. Several studies show that the weight loss that you get from cardio plus diet is typically 50% muscle. So if you lose 10 pounds of weight and half of it is muscle, guess what? Your body fat percentage is the same. You're actually the same body fat, except now you have a slower metabolism and you're weaker and flabbier. So that old paradigm not only is false, it's actually caused people a lot of problems. Now let's look at resistance training, right? What are the primary forms of adaptation that resistance training so tells before, before we go into to, uh, resistance training, I do want to I do want to discuss this because it's important. I don't I don't want to sound like we're poo pooing cardiovascular training because it's so important. I think I'd love to hear where you go on this. Um, having a base level of aerobic fitness is imperative to performance. It's imperative to recovery. It's imperative to nutrient utilization and metabolic flexibility, right? So um, I think instead of just going, hey, you shouldn't do any cardio, which is the opposite, which is an incorrect paradigm, there needs to be some base level of cardiovascular slash aerobic fitness established because it decreases the time between workouts. It decreases the time between sets. 
improves metabolic flexibility because the cells just become more efficient, efficient and effective at using calories. So there, there needs to be a balance because ultimately I want to be able to perform well and be able to train hard and having some base aerobic fitness is literally the predecessor to me being able to, to increase my work capacity in the gym. Yes. No, I'm glad you said that. And I do want to say this real, uh, to just to be very, very clear, the perfect routine. Okay. The perfect workout routine is the one that I do. Yeah. right. Look at you. Um, no, the perfect routine for people who want to improve their health, longevity, have good fit, healthy bodies has a resistance training component, a cardiovascular component, and some type of a flexibility or mobility component. Totally. Be very yep. clear. But now here's, here's why, it, here's why I'm talking about, I'm talking the way I'm talking. If we look at the average person, okay, and this is in my experience, the average person, first off, they're, they're very busy, but very sedentary. Okay. So, uh, we are very sedentary, but we're also very busy. Things are booked all the time. And the truth of the matter is that the average person, if they do everything right, if they develop a good relationship with exercise, if they find a way to be consistent, what we can hope for at most is about two or three days a week. Of, of structured exercise. That's the yeah, truth. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Everybody else is a fitness fanatic and it's just the way it is. If I could get the average person to do anything consistently with exercise, what I, the most I can hope for is about two or three days a week. With that little time being spent to exercise or even less, somebody does once a week, if they had to pick one form of exercise, the form of exercise they should pick is resistance training. Resistance training should form the base foundation of your exercise routine. Now, if you if you have time and you exercise more and you're very health conscious and you're very smart about it, then you need to have other components for ideal fitness and health. But if if my aunt comes to me and says, you know, I want to work out and I say, okay, well, realistically, be honest with me, how many days a week can you start now and do forever? And she says, uh, I'll be honest with you, Sal, I got once a week. You know, I got once a week, 45 minutes, that's all I'm going to do. I'm going to have her do resistance training because it's going to give her the most bang for her buck. And, and here's some of the reasons why. I, I was getting into kind of the adaptations that resistance training, uh, you know, asks for, right? When you do resistance training, you're telling your body to get stronger and build more muscle. Now, the, the side effect of that is a lot of awesome stuff. Well, number one, I have a faster metabolism. Well, that makes it a lot easier to live in, in normal society where food is so plentiful and palatable. It's actually a, a, an advantage to have a fast metabolism. Maybe 5,000 years ago, it was not. But now, if I can burn the calories off because I have a fast metabolism, I have a buffer between me and inflammation and me and obesity and me and uh, chronic illness. The second thing, there is, no, there is, there is nothing that's more protective uh, in terms of insulin sensitivity than muscle. In fact, studies will show that regardless of body weight. So you can take someone who's severely obese. If they gain muscle, they become more sensitive to insulin. Now, why is this important? Well, of course, diabetes is a big problem, but insulin resistance is probably the root cause of a lot of our inflammatory chronic issues. And it's probably one of the main drivers of uh, dementia and Alzheimer's. In fact, both of those have been referred to as type 3 diabetes. This is why when you take someone who's Alzheimer's or, or dementia and you put them on a ketogenic diet, they have an improvement in cognition, not necessarily because the ketogenic diet is magical, but rather their brain is utilizing more ketones and less sugar because they're not, their body stopped utilizing it very well. Well, when you build muscle, I mean, muscle is one of the ways we store glycogen. Muscle is very insulin sensitive. 
Um, so you've got those benefits on top of it. Uh, bone mass. It directly builds bone mass. Other forms of exercise are terrible at this. I mean, if you see uh, running, for example, you might see a small increase in bone mass in the lower extremities. You see zero for the upper extremities. In some cases, you see decreases. Let's talk about hormones. Um, resistance training is the only form of exercise that reliably raises testosterone in all men. Whether your testosterone is low, in the middle, or high, you can pretty much expect, with proper resistance training, a boost in testosterone, along with an increase in androgen receptor density, which is these are the these are the locks that the testosterone key goes in and becomes and activates. The more androgen receptors you have, the more effective your testosterone is. Uh, it raises growth hormone uh, across the board, insulin sensitivity in women. You see a balance of estrogen and progesterone. You see, over time, a lowering of cortisol. Now, other forms of exercise not only don't do this, but other forms of exercise have a tendency to do the opposite. In fact, I, there was a study that was just, I, I, I'll share it with you after, that showed that endurance uh, exercise, when, when people train for endurance, they pretty reliably will lower their testosterone levels. This is true for men. Now, someone asked me, maybe watching and thinking, well, why? I, you know, doesn't exercise make you healthy? And it's because resistance training is the only form of exercise that is pro-tissue. Other forms of exercise are anti-tissue. So not to keep hammering on cardio, but I, I'll, I'll talk about it because it's the most common form of exercise. Cardiovascular ac activity is anti-tissue. Your body tries to pare down muscle in order to become better at the cardio. Resistance training directly tells your body, we need more active muscle. We need more active tissue. Now, what hormones are needed for that to happen, right? If your body wants to build muscle, it's going to start doing things to uh, make building muscle easier. So in men, you'll see testosterone levels go up. In men and women, you'll see growth hormone levels start to rise and become more youthful. You'll see estrogen and progesterone balance out. You'll see cortisol start to flatten out or become a little bit healthier. You'll see insulin sensitivity increase because insulin is also an anabolic hormone. Well, if your body is wanting to decrease muscle, what hormones can get in the way? Testosterone, growth hormone, right? What hormones help your body get rid of muscle? Cortisol, which is what you tend to see elevated in people that make lots of cardio the cornerstone uh, of their routine. So, um, and, and there's so much more, man. It's just, it's so, it's so crazy to me how resistance training has been so stigmatized and yet how it literally is, obviously there's a formula for solving our health issues and there's a dietary component and a lifestyle component and those are very important. I don't want to pretend like exercise solves everything. But the exercise component solution should be for the average person. I'm not even talking about for the guy or girl who wants to look jacked or whatever. Just for the average person, it should be resistance training. It does, it does everything better and more effectively. Okay, talk to me about why circadian biology is so closely correlated with cardiovascular health. So there's you know, approximately 100,000 reactions happening in the body every second. And the greatest majority of them are all yoked to your light environment. You know, the cells actually use different frequencies of light to communicate with each other. It's not wavelengths of light that you see, but it's wavelengths of light that your mitochondria and the cells sense. So as humans, we evolved outside under the sun's natural powers. We weren't supposed to be inside 90% of the time staring at these screens. You know, these screens tell your brain it's noontime all the time, and you'll make different hormones when it's noon versus 9 p.m. at night. 
So to optimize your circadian rhythms, it uh, generally takes two uh, things. One, it's controlling your light environment, and then it's controlling the timing that your nutrients come into the system. So you know, timing of the nutrients is pretty easy. You know, I usually tell people, you know, when the sun's up, you can eat. When the sun's down, stop eating. You know, ideally, you should stop eating three to four hours you know, before bed because that actually will cause the liver and gut clocks to shut off for the night. But the way to control the, the light environment is really to use more sunlight and less artificial light. You know, the morning light doesn't have any UVs. You're not going to injure your eyes by going outside at sunrise. You know, get 20 minutes of morning sun, you know, naked eyes to the skies is one of my, you know, friend says, um, you know, that helps set your circadian clock for the day. You have a, you know, some called the supercosmic nucleus that sits behind your eyes. And it's essentially sampling the color of the sky to tell your brain what time of day it is. And then the, that little clock tells the rest of the body it's daytime. So cortisol, you know, gets a bad rap sometimes, but cortisol is not all bad. You need a certain amount of cortisol to have alertness to, um, you know, to go about your day for your mood and energy. But Blue light from the sky is one of the things that stimulates cortisol. Blue light from your screens also will stimulate cortisol. And if you stimulate cortisol all day long, what you would do is you'll suppress melatonin. And melatonin is the hormone of darkness. If you're making melatonin throughout the day, it only gets released when it's dark. And if you look at your screen at nine o'clock at night and try to go to bed at 9.30, your brain's not going to have enough melatonin to actually repair the damage that's gone on through the day. So if you don't have enough melatonin, your mitochondria suffer while you sleep. The mitochondria are the organelles in your cells that make energy for you, and your heart and brain are the two organs that have the most mitochondria. So if you mess up your circadian biology, you can't repair your mitochondria, you're going to have more likely poor heart function. So what about people right now who are eating really well, maybe they're training really well, probably even sleeping really well, but are still having some of these expressions of negatively impact cardiovascular or endothelial function, what would be some of your suggestions? Maybe it's supplements, maybe it's biohacks. Uh, what are the ways that we should be taking action right now? You know, if, if I want to throw the full gamut at it, like I want to optimize this over the next five to 10 years, what should I be doing every day? Every day, number one, see every single sunrise to the day you die. The sun is that important in the morning time to set your circadian clocks. You can't recreate it with artificial lights. Um, when you're inside, protect yourself from the artificial light through the eye pathway. So if, you know, if you're watching this in a video, I'm wearing a pair of blue blocking glasses that block out you know, about 40% of the blue light coming off this technology. That tells my brain that it's not fully noon all the time. About an hour before bed, I switch to a red pair of glasses, tell the brain it is nighttime. That lets cortisol drop and melatonin rise and get you ready to fall asleep. You know, then, you know, we did mention, you know, if you're already doing, you know, you're eating relatively clean, you're, you know, you're moving your body a few times a week. Great. You know, are you dealing with your stress? You know, there's things you can monitor your heart rate variability. So, you know, if you're a hard charging athlete and you're overtraining, you're going to have low heart rate variability. If you have low heart rate variability, you're going to end up with atherosclerosis sooner than later. So look at heart rate variability as a metric of pretty quick wins. Like, okay, you've rest and recovered well enough. Um, and then, you know, if you really still have low nitric oxide levels on test strips and, you know, endopat tests, that's where the blood work might kind of push you towards, okay, this is the type of food stuff, you know, you might want to focus on more, or this is the type of exercise you might want to focus more on. Very cool. Um, that's awesome. You mentioned some supplements to me last time. One that comes to mind is vitamin K2. I've heard some people speaking about its miraculous ability to reverse uh, arterial plaques. Any idea on the research there? For sure. So, I mean, you know, earlier I talked about, you know, the CT coronary calcium score test, you know, the, you know, calcium is supposed to be in your bones and teeth. It's not supposed to be in your arteries. 
So what helps with calcium metabolism is vitamin D as well as vitamin K2. And if you're lower either on D or K2, the calcium doesn't necessarily go where it's supposed to go. So there is data on vitamin K2. There's an MK4 version and an MK7 version. The MK7 version is just a little bit better absorbed. Um, so vitamin K2, MK7 can help with arterial uh, plaques, uh, help first stabilize it, and also tends to put a thicker cap over the plaque, so less likely for it to rupture. So that's one of those instances where it's actually hardening it, even though we, we yeah, uh, my brain would go, well, I don't want it to harden. I want to get it. I want to go away from it. But you're saying that hardening, it's actually a good thing. It can be a good thing. And also I have seen, you know, um, when people have more mild disease, you know, doing this type of regimen, and I've seen the plaques, you know, fully regress and the artery thickness go back to normal. I never promised that, but you know, that is potentially, or you get the, you know, the inciting agent out of the way and the body has an amazing ability to repair itself, but K2 can help augment that process. So is there such thing as doing too much with an nitric oxide system? So, you know, bodybuilders are taking arginine, citrulline, beetroot, uh, other, um, you know, organic nitrates. Um, you know, some of them are taking like Cialis pre-work, five, five milligram, milligrams of Cialis every day as prescribed by their doctors. Any thoughts on that? I mean, it, it's honestly, you know, if you want to go deep down the rabbit hole, it's, it's the other stuff that's in the supplements that might be the problem. So, you know, there's something called deuterium. So deuterium is heavy hydrogen. So a lot of the supplements and food stuffs that are, you know, artificially manufactured are going to have higher levels of deuterium. So hydrogen is an extremely um, important compound in the body. You know, your protons, you know, you, you know, when you, eat, when you actually eat food, you know, you're not eating carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. You know, what your mitochondria actually do with it is they strip that stuff down the fats and the carbohydrates into protons, hydrogens, and electrons. And then they run the electrons through the electron train transport and they make ATP on the other side of it. But if you put deuterium into the system, the deuterium basically plugs up the mitochondria's ability to make energy efficiently. And a lot of the supplements have high levels of deuterium in it. So they're probably you know, getting some benefit with the nitric oxide, but maybe they're loading themselves up with too much deuterium and they're making less energy in their cells because of that. So we had Dr. Laszlo Boros on the podcast. And if you don't know him, he's, he's one of the main guys in deuterium research from the Center for Deuterium Depletion out in Santa Monica. And uh, so if you want to go down that rabbit hole, he says, don't drink water, don't eat vegetables, only eat meat if you want to decrease your deuterium. And so in that, and that's, you know, breath, maybe the carnivore diet is the best way to go if deuterium is in any way implicated in cardiovascular health. So, I mean, that the... Uh, um... So I'll disagree with him on that part that, you know, you should only eat, you know, animal proteins and fats. I mean, you know, he has some metabolic issues that he's trying to personally reverse. So he has his own little regimen for that. But do you yeah, know him personally? I do not know him personally, but I've listened to a lot of his podcasts and I know some of the people that- So he was just know. talking from a low level of deuterium. He's like, mm -hmm. vegetables are loaded, water's loaded, don't consume them, just have meat. Right. And so, I mean, the, the story of deuterium is that it depends where it is, where it's bad. When it's inside your blood vessels, it's actually beneficial, but when it's inside the mitochondria, it's bad. And deuterium is, you know, heavily loaded in breast milk. Kids use tons of deuterium to grow. Deuterium is kind of something that helps things grow. Hmm. So when plants are making fruit, they're dumping all their deuterium into the fruit. The fruit drops to the ground. The animal runs, eats the fruit because it's sweet. They eat the seeds. They go poop the seeds out new plants grow. So deuterium helps things grow and you want to grow when you're young. You don't necessarily want to grow when you're older. You know? So cancer has an issue with too much deuterium in the wrong places. So this is the reason why a keto diet can be beneficial 
depending on what latitude you're at in the world at that time of year. So keto is neither good nor bad. It's completely individualized to where you're at on the world at that time. And so a keto diet, you know, in an area where you have true winters, you would not have had access to fruits and vegetables. You would have only had meat and proteins and things. And so you would have had a lower deuterium diet in the wintertime. And then in the summertime, you would have had a higher deuterium diet. UV sun helps your body clear deuterium. Sweating helps you clear deuterium. So deuterium is not necessarily always bad. It's just bad when it's in high levels in the wrong places. Many people, they are talk, they are, have done a lot of seated meditation and practice presence and awareness. But if you take them and you try to put any kind of feedback on their focus, you'll be surprised at the result. An outside feedback. For example, take a stick and balance it on your fingers. Everybody can do that pretty much for 30 seconds. No problem. Take an advanced meditator, have him do it for 30 seconds. If he's successful, tell him now do it for one hour without dropping the stick. You'll discover that his focus cannot be applied well into this new scenario. And he will lose it after a few minutes, one moment of lack of awareness and boom, it falls. And that's for me touching the weakness of the container, even seated meditation, where if you're truly interested in achieving present, continuous presence, regardless of scenario, you, are, you have a better bet to do it through multiple containers and using some kind of a feedback where it's possible. You said when referring to movement as the gateway to an optimized mind, right? So you use the, the, the example of you know, becoming better, a better thinker or mathematician, you mentioned applying a, spe a specific methodology. And I'm curious what that methodology is. This is really the heart of my work. This is really what most people don't know about my work. They cannot appreciate it and because they will never know it from outside. This is truly the essence of what I call movement practice. I don't need to take my shoes off to count the number of people that I believe are addressing it well from my point of view. Of course, it's just my point of view. Why? Because some systems are all about the protocols. If you get the right protocol, you get the result. But this practice is all about error management. It's not about the protocol. You can, I can give you all the protocols as people are doing and you still have no results whatsoever in terms of general movement development, et cetera. Because it's all about managing the day-to-day -day problems that are arising individually. So for example, in our online uh, platform that we offer people training, there is no program you can get. You, you can't buy a program. It's all individual and you are being monitored by a person on the other side, constantly receiving feedback, which makes it very cumbersome, very expensive, and very difficult to do in terms of sending videos and being all the time being watched and being, but it is the real practice. And that is also something that actually appears in almost everything, also in bodybuilding. For example, you can give me your program. It doesn't mean nothing. It has many aspects of problem solving day to day that I need to learn how to do. This is the order in the chaos. And the way that I 
try to switch the task and construct the practice as I go along the way. And I try to do the same with my students. Of course, you make many mistakes, but because my focus has been on it for many decades, I, I've, I've, I've gained certain insight into the, in this process. And I, and I see that a lot of people, that's where they fail. They try to get certain protocols. They just try to repeat the protocols, whether it's a, you know, chemical protocols, whether it's nutritional protocols, whether it's a movement protocol. It's just bad protocols. It, 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 it gives something, but the real secret is not there, especially in this practice. The real secret is not there. It's super individualized. Every scenario changes and switches, and it's never the same. You never step into the same river twice. I'm curious where the, the inspiration for this depth of exploration and curiosity came from. I think um, part of it is something that emanates from inside, some combination, some lucky combination of attributes. Uh, I haven't been blessed with many physical attributes or that I would really could have used during my, my practice. Um, but certain other attributes of way of thinking, way of feeling, certain sensitivity was there. And the second part is proper environment for self-education. And this, my mother has been a big part of that. Instead of educating me, she took care that I will educate myself, which was a much smarter and an intuitive way for her. She, she didn't need to specifically think about it, some of the things she did, but other things she just naturally understood, which allowed me to construct certain way of being, which is very resilient, is very autonomous, and it enabled me to, to navigate my life I think in, in a better way in, in many scenarios. And this relates to what you mentioned, all these rules and all these educational attempts that are being slapped on us, which are actually robbing us the opportunity of developing the real skill behind everything. For example, uh, if you tell me um, not to lie as a parent, you make me a slave. Even if I don't lie, I'm not doing it from any motive of my own. I'm doing it out of fear. I'm doing it out of trying to please, etc. So this is not actually genuinely rising from me and occurring from the right place. But opposite, I've been now robbed of that opportunity to a large extent. While if you create the conditions in which I will feel the sting of my lies, naturally and alone, then you would educate me in a passive way much more deeply and will affect me for the rest of my life. And I think that we receive certain opportunities of that sort, but most of these opportunities are being stolen in modern culture. I want to be able to move at a level that my kids move and teach them how to move and pass it on to them. Because I just see the value. I just see the value, as you say, in awareness. Like awareness is the root of all change. Uh, you know, in order to make a shift, we have to become aware of it. And um, yeah, that's that's tremendous. So I, I want to come back to you know, what it would look like for someone sitting at home right now saying, okay, I want to start uh, an intentional movement practice. I want to start mo moving in a way that you would suggest to get, get out of the box, we'll say, right? Or to start exploring the small frame. 
Okay, the real answer people don't like to hear, but that's the real genuine answer I can give. In this state of hearing this, being inspired, the only answer can be education. This is the only answer. We can apply certain things and we can start to play with certain things, but definitely the majority of our investment in this beginning phase is to study these concepts. And these are very weird way of using our mind, using our body, using our awareness. And it takes education. Um, just like if, you, if I ask you about bodybuilding, then I can, you can give me the, the simple global gym workout three times, eight to 12 or whatever. And that would be immediate. Cool. But the real answer, if you wish to become involved with bodybuilding, would be to educate yourself on so many different things and also at the same time start to practice. And that's the answer, the only answer that I can also give. Uh, have you ever experienced in maybe the last, you know, call it 20 years, any injuries or any joint pain? Very little. Very little because my secret is that I'm a big coward. Hence, I, I've been able to always avoid the things that next to me, people in martial arts or the military or anywhere that I was in, in competitive athletics, etc. I saw people getting injured. And I think this is also part of my limiting factor that I, I'm very resistant to certain change and had to work on that over the years, but it also protected me tremendously. I've experienced some injuries here, there, but relatively for what I did and for the time I did it and for the amount of practice, like I'm saying many, many hours a day, every day, that's what I do. My body is a body of a child. That has been also a big eye opener as I saw like people over the years degrade and have difficulties. And then other students of mine, I saw a difference. I saw something else that is there to balance it out, to protect. Um, and and that, that is certain attribute of it. For me, one of the proper practices. The reason is not the usual reason that people think of. And usually we are mentioning longevity and we mention health. Two words that... I have a bit of a nausea from and, and have got tired from because this longevity, uh, it, it comes on a cost. It, it, it comes with a cost. It, it, comes, it comes with a certain price that you pay as an individual in your evolution. And also it comes as a cost of the global, of the, of the, the, major, the, the big pool. Uh, if you survive long, somebody else doesn't. There is always a cost. And the other thing is like this perfect health. But sometimes we need to actually damage our health to get certain, certain progression, certain attributes. If we are trying to aspire for perfect health, we are moving against the grain. Because from the moment we are born, we are dying. We are in a constant death. We are aging and dying. We are not living. We are dying. So hence, this immediately creates a collision and immediately creates a problem that starts slowly, slowly to build up, to build up, to build up. Look at, for example, for, for example my beard, my white beard. When I, when I got a few white hairs, 
I could, <laughs> I could paint them black, but eventually my whole beard will turn white. And now I have to paint it daily and to keep it in that shape. And underneath the surface, it is white, but I hide it. Let's say I, I am able to hide it, but other aspects will spill out. So my skin will wrinkle. So I hide that. Another aspect will come out. My eyes will deteriorate. And you see the quality of the eyes in older people. Everything you are just creating a resistance and eventually it will eat you up. Eventually it will build up to huge magnitude. What I'm saying is I don't, I don't say abandon this. Let it wash over you. Let it degrade you. Take care of yourself, but know a limit. Health is not a good epitome to focus on. Neither is longevity. Anyone that does that and put all the eggs in this basket will eventually, from basic logic, as I said, will pay the price. Because in this game, we all go to the same spot and we all lose that game. But if your game is different, you might get away with it. Thanks for listening to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. For full episode guides with important takeaways and bonus resources, head over to muscleintelligence.com slash learn. If you enjoy the show and find value in the content, please subscribe, share this podcast with at least one person you know and love who would benefit from this content, leave us a review, and support our sponsors. You can see the full list of show sponsors, discounts, and get exclusive Muscle Intelligence deals at muscleintelligence.com slash resources. To join our private community and get VIP access to my master classes, upcoming muscle camps, and other resources that we don't post anywhere else, head to muscleintelligence.com slash community. Most of all, thank you very much for your trust, for your time, and most importantly, for supporting health and fitness in this world. Enjoy your day, and I look forward to seeing you here next week. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Bikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.